Hey, thank you so much, Mercy Road. It's an honor to be here with you guys. I uh, love seeing what God's doing here. I love Josh and his family, and um, man, we just are really privileged to be able to share this weekend, share a little bit of our story, but most importantly, I, I don't want to focus as much on, on our story. I want to focus on the story of Jesus. Is that okay? Can we talk about Jesus this morning? And um, uh, I, what I want to talk about is how to, how to hurt, but how to hurt with hope. I know the common denominator for every single one of us in life is pain. We, we've all experienced it. If you've not experienced some kind of trial, tragedy, or transition in your life, you, you were probably born yesterday and you should be in the kids' ministry, not in here, okay? And so there's three types of people in this room. You, you are either currently in the middle of a valley or you're coming up out of one. Thankfully, God is seeing you through it or you're on your way into one. And so maybe today is just one of those days that you need to grab your notebook and take some notes and use it to pull out of the archives later on so you can train for the trial that you're not currently in. About three and a half years ago, many of you know our story. Um, our family walked through the, the gravest trial and tragedy that, that anybody can even imagine. And uh, it's one that I wouldn't, wouldn't wish on my worst enemies. Um, I came home from the gym early one morning on November 10th, 2015, and I found my beautiful wife of seven years uh, face down on our living room floor in a pool of blood. Later found out that there had been a a home invasion in our home. It was all over national news. And in that moment, my world got turned upside down. I don't know if you've ever been through a moment that is that traumatic. And what I tell people often is don't try to compare pain because you can't. Pain's pain, okay? And so whatever you're going through, although it may not feel like it's as grave, it still feels painful. And so no matter where you're at in this situation, I want to talk about how if you get nothing else in here this weekend, you need to know the reason we could step up here in the beginning song we could celebrate is because no matter what tribulation you're going through with Jesus, there's always celebration at the end of the story. Come on, Mercy Road, that he takes our greatest tragedies, he turns them into triumph in Christ. I want to uh, back up and tell you a little bit about how um, Amanda and I met uh, we met in college. She was a high school student. I was a college student, and I was at Southern Wesleyan University playing baseball there. Uh, it's a sister school of Indiana Wesleyan in South Carolina. Met a guy named Gavin on the athlete hall. Couldn't figure out why he was on the athlete hall, because he was a golfer. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying. <laughs> he was like, hey, man, you need to meet my girlfriend's sister. You guys would be incredible for each other. And so he convinced me to go up to Elkhart, Indiana. I asked him, I was like, what's an Elkhart? He was like, Cornfields and RVs. That's about it, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I'll go up. He said, this girl's up there. You've got to meet her. And so we went to a Hawk Nelson concert that night, back when Hawk Nelson was like cool and underground before they started playing him on K-Love. Come on, if you know, you know. And so went to a Hawk Nelson concert, then afterwards went to the place that every great relationship starts. Come on, steak and shake. Let's go. I know the Shekinah glory has visited everybody here in Indianapolis when it comes to shake, steak and shake. So we're sitting at steak and shake and um, we're drinking milkshakes and she had a strawberry milkshake and I'm more godly, had a chocolate milkshake. Hello. And decided to crack a joke um, in our milkshake drinking contest just to try to be cute. And she laughs and shoots milkshake out of her nose. In that moment, I looked at her, and I was like, that's going to be my wife right there. That's amazing. So we started this long-distance dating relationship, and then both graduated college in 2008, started working at a really large church in South Carolina that was fast-growing, and man, we loved every single bit of it. We thought we'd be there for the rest of our lives. I was a youth pastor. We were watching teenagers meet Jesus week in and week out, and then God started knocking on our hearts. I'm not sure if you've ever had that moment where God begins knocking on your heart, this like holy discontent or righteous angst that stirs up inside of you. It keeps you up at night, 
wakes you up in the morning, makes you salivate at the mouth. It's God calling you to something bigger than yourself. And he said, I want you to plant a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. We didn't know anybody in Indianapolis. And so we prayed against it for eight months. You ever prayed against God's will? Come on. Usually you, you lose that battle, you know? And so after about eight months of praying against it, we finally opened up our hands and said, God, we'll do whatever you call us to do. We'll go wherever you call us to go. And so November 11th, 2011, we packed up a moving van. We moved to Indianapolis. And I tell you that date because there's some significance in that date. It was November 11th, 2015, four years to the day later that Amanda was pronounced dead in the hospital. I need you to know that if you look for thumbprints of God's work in your story and his hand in it, he's in the details. People say the devil's in the details. No, God's in the details. And he's in every single situation telling you, I'm here. I'm not surprised by this. I'm not wringing my hands in heaven trying to figure out what to do with this. I'm going to walk you through this if you trust in me. November 11, 2011, we got on the ground and uh, we got a realtor because we, we knew that we needed to make a statement. To, we, were, we were here. This was, Indianapolis was our city. We were going we to be here and invest in this city. And so we uh, picked a day to start looking at houses. And the first house we show up at was 2812 Sunnyfield Court. Amanda goes running around the house and she looks at all the rooms. She comes back to me with these bright eyes. She goes, this is our house, Davey. This is our house. And I'm like, all right, hold on. I've, I've watched Chip and Joanna. <laughs> you don't buy the first house, you know, that you. And so we looked at about 20 other houses. We didn't know what good schools there were, where we wanted to plant the church, what kinds of safe neighborhoods there were in Indianapolis. And so we finally came back to 2812 Sunnyfield Court after searching all around. And she gave me that look. Come on, husbands, you've gotten this look before. The You should have listened to me the first time. It would have saved a lot of time. Look, you know. And so we began to go through the process of putting an offer in on this house. And it, the offer that we put in was a lowball offer. Now, our realtor was a man of faith, so he trusted big things for us. We had no idea where our income was going to come from, so we just felt like God had given us a number, and we were going to stick to our guns on that number. Put the offer in, and they laughed us off the table. So you got to come back with a much bigger offer than this if you even want to entertain negotiating. We've turned down three offers higher than this. So we went back to her grandmother's house in Brownsburg where we were staying at the time and began to just pray about it. So God, we don't have to be in this house. If you don't want us in this house, then open up other doors of opportunity. And Amanda's grandmother used to tell us, faith is living without scheming. So we decided not to manipulate the process, came back the next day, put the same exact offer in. Now, our realtor, a man of faith before, was like, yeah, let's trust God. The next day when we put the same offer in, he was like, are you smoking something? Like, that doesn't work, you know? And we put the offer in, they accepted that became our house, 2812 Sunnyfield Court. Man, it was an awesome house because that's where we started our church. We had four people in the living room the very first night of opening up our meetings for our church. And I preached a message called invite because we had four people. You know, we got to invite some people here. <laughs> the very next week, you know how many people we had? We had four people. And so I had to totally change my message. And so I preached another message called invite harder, you know, like, we like Skyped her sister and brother-in-law in from Elkhart one week and we called ourselves a multi-site church. Hello, come on. There was one night a pregnant woman came and we're like, you count as two, okay, come on in. It was an awesome church. The very first people that met Jesus in our church met Jesus right there in that living room. And we started, we started our kids ministry back in our master bedroom, put VeggieTales on. Yeah, I can't, I can't tell you how many times we crawled into our sheets when goldfish crackers are there inside of our sheets, you know, and don't despise the days of humble beginnings, friends. That was a beautiful house. We brought Weston home after we had him. We brought him home to that house. That was also the house that on November 10th, I walked across that threshold and walked into my worst nightmare. 
I mean, in those moments, your life turns completely upside down. I rushed to Amanda's side. I tried to assess what was going on, couldn't figure it out. Everything was going in fast motion and in slow motion all at the same time. I grabbed my phone and called the paramedics. It took, felt like it took three hours for them to get there. I found out later it only took three minutes. And we got to the hospital and sat there in the waiting room, and I just held Weston, and I was shaking. I felt like I was an out-of-body experience. I just told Weston, we're going to be okay, we're going to be okay, we're going to be okay, because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like us. I mean, we answered a call from God. <laughs> this stuff happens to other people on the news. It doesn't happen to God. God, we had this deal. You're, gonna, you're supposed to protect us. And the next thing I know in the waiting room, doctors and investigators came in, and they told me what had happened. They said that she had a bullet. That she had three bullet wounds. One was in her arm, one had grazed over her back, and one was in the back of her head. A bullet was lodged behind her eye, and that they were going to try to operate if they could, if the swelling in the brain would go down, but the prognosis was very grim. I mean, I, I don't know if it was denial or shock or, or faith or a combination of all of those things, but I grabbed the doctor's hands and I prayed the biggest, boldest prayer of faith that I could possibly muster up. I said, God, I know that there are people in this hospital, doctors and physicians and nurses who are skeptics that don't believe in you. Lord, you are a miracle worker. You can replace brain matter even as we speak. And so if you want to use us, as a symbol of a miracle to sweep a revival across this hospital, would you heal Amanda? Would you do it in your name, Jesus? 24 hours later, she was pronounced dead. She was pregnant with our second. She's 13 weeks along. And in 24 hours, I lost my wife and my little baby girl. Those are moments that um, you can't predict. Every single one of us could have a moment like that, a phone call that completely changes the course of our life. These are moments that can either shake your faith or they can shape your faith. And I didn't know what to do. I joke around sometimes that I had, a, I had a drug problem growing up, that I was drugged to church every time the doors were open because I was a pastor's kid. But man, can I tell you, Mercy Road, I'm so glad that my parents drug me to church week in and week out. Because, because I, I had no idea what kinds of deposits were being put in me of stories of big faith and people who had walked through all kinds of tragedy in the Bible and yet they looked to Jesus, they kept their focus on him and he carried them through the valley and later I would need to withdraw on that. I had no idea and so I'm so glad that my parents had me in church and I'm telling you, if you're a parent in here, continue to drag your kids to church no matter what kind of stink they put up. I'm sure here at Mercy Road, they're dragging you to church, come on. But have them here week after week. You be here week after week so you can be deposited into because you have no idea when you're going to need to withdraw from that. So I just did whatever I knew to do. This muscle memory came out and I went to God's word. And I started reading this book that I never understood before I walked through a valley. It's uh, Psalms. Come on, can we be honest? Psalms can be a little bit confusing. Most of it's written by this guy named David who later became King David. And it's like one chapter, he's like, God, I feel you so near to me. Your breath is on my neck. And then like the very next chapter, he's like, where are you? You abandoned me. You know, it's, like someone, this guy sounds a little schizophrenic, like get him some medication or something. And I didn't understand it until I went through a valley. And then I totally got it. Because I knew what it, what it was like to wake up some mornings and have this peace that passes all understanding that was guarding my heart and mind. To, to, to know what it meant that he is near to the brokenhearted. To know what it was like to stand in front of national television and declare the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living when all I had experienced was death. But come on, can I be honest? Is it okay to be honest in church? I also knew what it was like to wake up the next morning and, and, and all I wanted to do was end my life. I couldn't imagine going on without her. And I'll never forget one morning, sitting there reading my Bible, 
And I came across this passage that's also familiar to every single one of us, especially if you grew up in church, Psalm 23. Come on, maybe you had a, a grandmother who had the feathered hair hippie Jesus picture on her wall that was holding a lamb and it said, the Lord is my shepherd. You got the coffee mug of Psalm 23. And I remember coming across it and the Lord goes, Davey, I wanna show you something that you've never seen before in this passage. And the thing that struck my attention was Psalm 23, verse four. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that moment, I was like, that's, that's me. That's me. God's got something he wants to speak to me right here. And so I felt like the Lord whispered, hey, go back and start reading verse one through three. And so, so I started reading again. Verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What an amazing promise that when we give Jesus the keys to our life, when we let him lead and guide and direct us, when we turn over our life to him, that we will lack for nothing. Come on, no matter what kinds of things we try to use to cope and numb, whether it's prescription medication or alcohol or relationships or meaningless sex or a career, whatever it is we try to cope and numb with, it will fall short. But come on, Jesus, our shepherd, he never falls short. He's the only one that can satisfy that God-sized hole in our lives. That is a good promise. I love verse one. I love verse two. Verse two, it says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Like these kinds of seasons of life are great. Everything's up and to the right. The business is going well. The organization is going well. The family's going well. Come on, you're not actually arguing on your way to church. Isn't that awesome? Most of the time it's like, shut up, we're going to worship Jesus. You know, it's like... But things are going well for once. This is so great. I love verse two seasons of life. I mean, I love verse three. I can keep my heart around that one too. It says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That when I give Jesus my life, this beautiful exchange happens where I swap all of my sin for all of his righteousness. And he begins to change me from the inside out. He's not trying to control or modify my behavior. He's changing my heart. He's changing my affections. He's changing my attention to be put on him so that everything outside of me begins to change them because it's changing from the inside. I love verse three seasons of life. But then verse four comes. And it always comes for us, friends. There's no escaping it. It's not a question of if something bad's gonna happen in your life. Come on, it's when something bad happens in your life, what are you gonna do with it? You see, what I love about following Jesus, he didn't pull the wool over our eyes. He said, in this world, you will find trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And verse four says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, what I used to believe before I walked through this valley was that the valley was punishment for something I had done wrong. Come on, isn't this something that we often go to as soon as you get that phone call, that cancer diagnosis, you go, okay, whoa, 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 hold on. What, wait, are you trying to get me back, God? What did I, for the, this, like, the sin that I have in my past or things that I've done wrong, is this punishment? And then I read this in a totally different way because there is a juxtaposition of verse three and verse four intentionally. Come on, verse three says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse four, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Come on, did you catch that? Go back to verse three. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Come on, can I issue to you this morning that perhaps some of the paths of righteousness that God is leading us into are in fact valleys of the shadow of death. Maybe there are some things about our righteousness or our sanctification, which is just a big word that means our growth in our relationship with Jesus that can't otherwise happen unless we walk through trying times. 
Well, we know this intuitively, don't we? We know the phrase, no pain, no. And that seems trite when we're talking about real life, tough tragedies in our life, but the principle is true. Many of us live by the philosophy, especially in America, no pain, no pain, you know, just keep that at bay. But the reality is, is that unless you put muscles under duress, you cannot grow those muscles. That's why many of us go to the gym, as we put them under duress to, to grow them. You need to know your faith is a muscle. Your faith is not something that you can just download by praying to God. It is something that is, it grows by us hearing God's word and then practicing it in the middle of our difficult situations. And unless our faith is put under duress, it cannot otherwise grow. So I felt in that moment as I was reading this, God was saying, hey, Davey, this right here is not an interruption to your story. This is an invitation into a greater story. It's not punishment for something that you've done wrong. This is preparation for a greater future and potential that I have for you. Now, this always begs the question, does that mean God caused this to happen? No. He cannot cause evil to happen in this world or in our lives. Evil, brokenness, sin, disease, cancer, all of those things are a result of us living in a fallen world. But sometimes God, and we don't know this on this side of eternity, we won't know it until we step over into the other side of eternity, but sometimes he allows the things that he hates in order to accomplish the thing that he loves. Redemption, restoration. He will give evil enough space in our lives that it will ultimately turn on itself. Come on, Satan is after us. He's here to steal, kill, and destroy, but God is the greatest jujitsu artist there is. Come on, friends. He takes the enemy's, the opponent's momentum, and he turns it around on the opponent. So I felt like God was saying, hey, this is what I want to do in your life, Davey, before I can do anything else through your life. And I believe, friends, he gave me three things, that there may be the three things that God is doing in your life in the midst of your trial, too. And the first one is this. He's making you dangerous. He's making you dangerous. Well, it says then in the next verse, it says, you, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And how dangerous of a dude do you have to be to sit down and dine in the presence of your enemies? That's like Liam Neeson taken dangerous, you know? Just imagine a guy, I'm, I love war movies, you know, like, like Lord of the Rings, Gladiator, 300, well, Gerard Butler makes a lisp look awesome, doesn't he? This is Sparta. Yeah. I imagine a guy in a war movie, you know, just stepping out on this battlefield, and he's surrounded by enemy armies, and he goes, all right, hey, before I open up a can of whoop butt on you, I'm gonna open up a can of Chef Boyardee right here. <laughs> you know why he's not concerned? He's not concerned because he knows that what surrounds what surrounds him is greater than what surrounds him. Come on. He knows greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That in Christ, no weapon formed against me can prosper. It reminds me a little bit of a guy named the Apostle Paul who wrote three quarters of the New Testament. You know what he said? To live is Christ, to die is gain. You know why he could say that? He was spreading the gospel message all over the Mediterranean. They were trying to stop him. And he said, okay, you know what? If, if I live, and as long as I live, I'm going to share Christ, the gospel message. But if, but if you kill me for it, <laughs> I get to be with Jesus. So my worst day becomes my best day. Come on, what's you going to bring at me now, enemies? Right? They tried to stop him. Let me just pause for a second. Maybe you're in here and you relate to the Apostle Paul. Because before he was Paul, his name was Saul. And he was opposed to Christianity. 
He'd drag Christians out of their house and he would beat them and he'd put them in prison and sometimes he would kill them. And then God radically got a hold of his life in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus and changed his heart and changed his mind, changed his direction and changed his identity from Saul to Paul and he became the biggest proponent of Christianity from then. And there might be someone in here who goes, Davey, I love this whole Jesus thing, giving my life to Jesus, accepting the free gift of salvation. That sounds awesome, but you have no idea what I've done and I am a really good sinner. Come on, you may be a good sinner, but our God is a much bigger and better savior than you are a sinner. And he got a hold of the apostle Paul. He can get a hold of your life as well. They tried to stop Paul. They were like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put him in prison. Paul goes, okay, well, I'll just start a prison ministry from the inside. And all the jailers got saved. They're like, don't, that didn't work. Okay, uh, let's beat him. Let's take him out into the public square. Let's, let's flog him and make an example of him. And then everybody watched with what triumph he walked through that public beating, and they all wanted to know what hope he had, and he proclaimed the hope of Jesus. They all get saved, and they're like, nope, that didn't work either. All right, let's kill him. Cool. You make him a martyr, more people get saved, and he gets to be with Jesus. Come on, when you've laid your life down, friends, nobody can take your life from you. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. You are a dangerous weapon against the enemy of darkness when you no longer care about your life from a selfish standpoint, and you use your life to help other people. Come on. He's making you dangerous. You see, um, this... Uh, this symbol right here of a sword has been a powerful symbol for us in our family. Um, the, the way it started is that when Amanda and I were engaged, I gave her a Braveheart sword, just like this, for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Chocolate, strawberries, Braveheart sword, you know? She was away at college, and I sent her this, like, really big oblong box. I imagine her doormates gathering around her, like, oh, it must be the biggest bouquet of flowers ever. How romantic. And she pulls out a sword. <laughs> but in that box, I'd also written her a poem. I'd burned the edges to make it look like papyrus scroll, and I called that poem The Fight. Essentially, what it said was, for the rest of my life, I promise to fight for your heart. And I'm inviting you into the greatest fight of all time. That's for the hearts of people who don't know Jesus. We got married, we did what's called a first look where the auditorium was empty and they put a playlist of music on for us and she walked down the aisle just for me. I didn't notice until she got down the aisle that she had behind her back another Braveheart sword. And she presented it to me and she said, Davey, today I'm joining you in the fight. And there's a single dude in here and you're like, okay, Braveheart sword, <laughs> epic poem, you know. The reason this is powerful and the reason we have two Braveheart swords now in our master bedroom sitting in the corner is because of the way a Braveheart sword, or any sword for that matter, is fashioned. A swordsmith takes a piece of metal that otherwise looks unusable, puts it in fire, temperatures upwards of 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit, pulls it out, puts it on an anvil, takes a hammer, and he begins to hammer the piece of metal. He's trying to make sure the sword is not too brittle to be taken into battle. And he's trying to wield it as a weapon. And if you were to personify feelings onto that piece of metal while the process is happening, you probably would not say it's a day at the spa. 
This is painful. And I wonder how many people in here, you have woken up, you've gone through your life the past few months, and you feel like the enemy is hammering you over and over and over and over. I need you to hear me say, friends, our God is so good that what the enemy means to discourage you, what the enemy means to distract you, what the enemy means to quite possibly even destroy you, our God uses to make you dangerous. Come on, Genesis 50 says what the enemy meant for evil, God means for good and the saving of many lives. He's making you dangerous, friends. You know how he's making you dangerous? You know how he's making me dangerous? Because the real enemy is not any person here on this world that comes against us. Not the three men that stand trial for Amanda's murder. It's Satan. And every time we preach the gospel of God's goodness and triumph in the midst of tragedy, friends, we are at gate the gates of hell redirecting traffic, plucking people up out of Satan's clutches and bringing them into the kingdom of light. Come on. That's a kick in the teeth to the enemy, friends. Isn't God good? He's making you dangerous. Number two, second thing, you're going to have to listen a lot faster. The second thing is he's increasing your capacity. The second part of that verse says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Have you ever seen an anointing process? Maybe you guys do baby dedications here. Oftentimes, you'll, when you dedicate a baby, you'll put oil on the baby's forehead and, and, or somewhere on their body, and you'll pray over them. This is a, this is a process that happened in Scripture. It was very, very, um, a powerful process where a prophet would anoint a king. David would have been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. This is why he can speak to this. And they do it to basically say, you're set apart. I have a unique and distinct calling for your life, something that's bigger than yourself. The New Testament tells us, friends, that every single one of us, with the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, as Christians, we are set apart for a unique and distinct calling, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the way that an anointing happens through olive oil is, and the way you can make olive oil is with olives. But it has to, an olive has to undergo a process of pressing, a lot like French press coffee. You go to um, Israel, and there's a place there. They took us to this place when I was visiting called the Mount of Olives. And in this mountainside that's just outside the city of Jerusalem, it's peppered with olive trees. The centerpiece of this mountain is this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's the place where Jesus spent the very last night before he was arrested, tried, and put on the cross for our sin. And he was under so much duress and anxiety over bearing the sin of the world that he literally sweat drops of blood that night. And the reason it's called Mount of Olives is because of all of these olives, olive trees. And Gethsemane in the Greek means the place of pressing. They would take all of the olives all of, off of these olive trees and they would press them into olive oil. But what's really interesting about this place is in the Greek it's called Gethsemane, but in the other common language of the day, Aramaic, it's called Gadsemane. Gadsemane means the place of ascension. This is very interesting because this is the place that Jesus, after he appeared to the disciples when he was raised from the dead, he ascended up into heaven. It's also the place that traditionally we believe he's going to come back and completely and finally destroy evil and wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right here at this one place, there's two diametrically opposed concepts that are defining this one location. You've got pressing and ascension, down and up. Don't miss the significance of this, friends. 
What this means is that in order for you and I to step into the ascension plan, the calling God has for us, we must first undergo crushing. Why? Why would we first have to undergo crushing in order to step into the calling that God has for our lives? Well, because if you prematurely step into your calling, you begin to think that you are the one that put yourself right there, that your talent, that your treasure, that your acumen, that your degree was the thing that put you into that calling. And you begin to walk around with this swagger in your life. But God does not want us to walk around with a swagger. He wants us to walk around with a limp. Because in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And he wants people to look at our lives and go, man, if God can do that in that person's life, through that person's trial, he can surely do it through mine as well. He wants to take the biggest test of your life and turn it into a testimony. He wants to take the biggest mess of your life and turn it into a message to the world. But first, he must press some things out of us. He says that you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Can we be honest about trial? We don't feel like our cup is overflowing, right? Many times we feel like it's empty. I felt like my cup was empty, but sometimes before God can fill our cups, he's got to empty us. Because maybe there's some things in our cups, the cups of our lives that are contaminants that are clogging up the work that God wants to do through our lives. And he's got to empty those cups and clean them out because God likes to serve up his food and drink on clean dishes. And maybe he's got to clean us out of the pride, clean us out of the jealousy and envy or the comparison or clean us out of anything that would hinder the work that he has for our lives. But it doesn't just say that he's going to fill us back up, friends, because he always fills us up after he empties us. He then says he, he's going to overflow our cups. And when our lives overflow, what does it do? It overflows onto other people's lives, in other people's cups. Perhaps your brokenness is not necessarily for you. Maybe your brokenness is to be a blessing for other people, and every time you bless other people, it fills you back up. Perhaps the purpose that God wants you to find in your pain is to help other people and not look solely at your own pain. The more you look at your pain, friends, the bigger your pain gets. The more you look at God and other people's pain and begin helping them, the smaller your circumstances look in the light of your Savior. Come on, he's increasing your capacity for influence. He's giving you platform out of your pain. He's increasing your capacity to be a husband, to be a father, to be a mother, to be a wife, to be a boss, to be an employee, to be a leader. He's increasing your capacity. And the last thing he's doing is he's mixing the ingredients. He's mixing the ingredients. Got a couple cakes up here. Anybody like cake? Yeah. Like cake? Okay. Oh, cool. I'll just eat it myself after this. That's fine. Um, in, in eating cake, uh, more specifically in baking cake, cakes have two different types of ingredients. One type of ingredient you would eat completely by itself, right? I mean, look at this cake. You even got little mini Oreos on top of this. I mean, I would eat Oreos by themselves all the time, right? Icing, sugar, like you give me that. I'm always the one taking the corner piece because I want more icing, right? But then there's other ingredients that you would never eat by themselves, like flour. Come on, can you imagine eating flour by itself? How much that would dry you out? Like, that sounds like a really awesome youth group game, okay? <laughs> like, how much flour can you eat in 60 seconds? You know, like chubby bunny. <laughs> Baking soda, raw egg, 
Sorry, Rocky Balboa, I'm not doing the raw egg, you know. Two different types of ingredients, and yet someone who is a master chef or baker specifically will take those two different types of ingredients, put them in a mixing bowl, and begin to mix them together. You know, there's a verse in scripture that talks about this. And I misinterpreted this verse growing up, Romans 8, 28. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work, what friends? Yeah, you see, I interpreted it growing up that for those who love God, all things are good. That as long as we follow Jesus, we're gonna be healthy, we're gonna be wealthy, things are gonna be up and to the right, it's gonna be verse one through three seasons of life. And yet that's not what Romans 8.28 says. It says, for those who love God, he works all things, come on, with me? Together. And a master baker takes that and he mixes the ingredients together and then he pours it into a, a cake pan and then he puts that cake pan in the oven and he turns the temperature up. And then he gives it a little time. And after some time, you hear a ding. And it's ready, and it's something beautiful. Come on, friends. I don't know if you're going through a sweet season of life or a bitter season. But whatever season you are going through in your life, if you put your life in the hands of the master baker, Jesus, and you let him put it in his mixing bowl, and he will mix those things together, and put it in the cosmic oven, and he might even turn the temperature up. But you give it a little time, and you put your trust in him, bing! He turns all things beautiful in his time. And then when the finished product comes out, you can even see the redemptive purposes of some of those bitter ingredients. Come on, flower, what was meant, the enemy meant to dry you up, God uses to raise you up. Hello. Salt, what the enemy meant to be bitter to the taste, God uses to preserve your life and give you flavor to help other people in their lives. Come on, he's mixing the ingredients for a redemptive story in your life. Psalm 23 doesn't end there. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Can I get, can I get you, guys, you guys, both of you guys, come up here and help me close this down. Will you come up here too real quick? I wanna, I wanna show you something. Um, Turner, Drew, will you guys grab one of those cakes right there? Just each one of you grab one of those. What's your name, my man? James. James, James is gonna represent Jesus for us this morning. Isn't that good? I know he's, a, he's amening right here. He's got to be close to Jesus. So I'm like, hey, let's grab James for Jesus right here. What scripture tells us is the Lord is my shepherd. And as I follow Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death, you see, many times we don't follow Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death. A valley causes us to, to run away from Jesus. A valley causes us to sit down and wallow in our pain. Come on, some of you have been wallowing in your pain for 20, 30, 40 years, and you're wondering why you've never gotten through your valley. You're asking God to get you out of the valley, and God's going, I'll get you out, but the, the way out is through. You gotta follow me. Some of you are trying to control Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death. No, no, no. If I tuck myself behind Jesus, and I follow after him, you know what scripture says in Psalm 23? Goodness and mercy follow me. So if Jesus decides to go and walk around this way and kind of cut a little detour, guess what happens? 
goodness and mercy will follow me. And I can command goodness and mercy to follow me because it's a promise in God's word. Goodness and mercy. Come on, come on, follow me. Let's go. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And I'll never forget preaching this message a year after Amanda passed away at her home church. And I didn't feel like, to be honest with you, that goodness and mercy were following me. And I stopped in the middle. I was like up one of the aisles. And, I, and, and the Lord just like, boom, right there in that moment, the whole congregation was like, is, is he okay? What's going on? But I felt like he downloaded this word on me and said, Davey, you don't know something's following you until you look back. And after you've given it some time, and trust in the Lord, you can look back and you can see all the providential relationships that God has woven throughout your story to provide for you in that moment. And the resources he's provided for you and the ways in which he's begun to weave this story into a redemptive story. And it looks like a chaotic, messy little thing on one side, but if you flip it over, it's a beautiful tapestry of a story that he's writing. And the reason the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me is because the best predictor of God's future faithfulness is his past provision. He has been faithful, so surely he will be faithful. Faithful you've been, faithful you'll be. And about a year and a half ago, I got to see just another chapter of God's redemptive story in our lives when I remarried. This is um, a picture of my new wife, Christy, and her daughter, Natalia. You know what people say? <clears throat> people say, man, it's so cool to see how God has redeemed your story. This is a part of the redemption of the story. Can I tell you something? God starts redeeming your story the minute you decide to trust him with your story and use that story to help other people. And this is a part of the redemption. And you know what I've nicknamed them? <laughs> Goodness and mercy. And you know what's so cool? God doesn't just fill our cups up. He overflows our cups. And we're expecting one of our own in October. Come on, the enemy stole and God brings it back and he raises things to life, friends, and he wants to do the same thing for your story. Could you, would you pray with me? Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. In this moment and in this, in this brief couple minutes that we're gonna have to just do business with God, I have no idea what circumstances you carried into this, what kind of pain, what kind of trial? But man, I know that this world is hard. Purpose of life is not to try to make life easy. The purpose of life is following Jesus and following him into living well in a difficult world. So right now, you may be here and you might be like, man, I'm going through a really rough time. And I just wanna pray for you. If you're, if you're wrestling through something difficult, if you're just walking through a season of trial, would you just, would you be honest in here? Would you just put your hand up in the air and leave it up? Say, Davey, would you pray for me? We're not going to call you out. We're not going to put you on the spot. I just want to know who I'm praying for. Amen. Amen. Jesus, you see these hands. More importantly, you see the hearts that are represented. And whether these folks need to step into a relationship with you for the first time or whether they just need to be reminded that you are with them in their valley, God, would you meet them right here where they're at? Would you give them the courage to tuck themselves behind you in their valley and follow after you? 
God, would you help them to see that you are near to them? It's so amazing that in verse four, you switch the tense to second person, Lord. That all the way, verse one through three, it's, it's he leads me, he leads me. That we can know about you on the mountaintops, but God, we get to know you in the valley. And I pray that this time would be a time where they're getting to know you on a deeper, more intimate level, where you are becoming more real to them than you have ever been. That you're equipping them with the tools that they'll need to carry out a great assignment you have for them in their future. So God, would you encourage us today as we step into this time with you. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.